controversy has often courted the role of the critic, sometimes personified as a miserly cynic, out to destroy rather than elucidate, enrich or enlighten. But criticism is a vital part of our creative arts ecology, both an art form in its own right, as well as space within which many practising artists engage in meaningful discourse with their peers. In this episode, we explore the role of the critic, both as a mode of discourse to be engaged in with care and as an internal force to be reckoned with, but not always dismissed. We spoke to actor and writer Carissa Lee about the place and value of arts criticism, caring for your community in criticism and the ways in which your own arts practice can inform and enrich your criticism. Carissa is a Wemba Wemba and Noongar actor and writer based in Melbourne. Carissa is currently taking her PhD in Indigenous Theatre through the University of Melbourne. She also writes for Witness Performance and works as a specialist editor for Swinburne University. I'm Izzy Robertsaw, the Artistic Director of the Festival. And I'm Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh. I'm the Digital Producer at EWF. So, criticism. It's a very broad kind of term. Yeah. I feel like maybe to get us started, um, why don't we... Have hash it out and have a bit of a go at defining what we mean when we're talking about criticism in this context. What does it mean to you? Yeah, I guess it's kind of a new thing for me, even though I've kind of been doing it for a bit over a year now. Criticism for me is a is looking at, you know, the performing arts and even just sort of having a bit more of a, an analytic look at the way things are working with culture in the performing arts and in even in this country. I mean, there's a lot to critique there, that's for sure. But I think it's being able to communicate what needs to be remedied or the intricacies of how these things can work and not work. People kind of assume that it's all negative because, you know, when someone's being critical or whatever, but it, it actually is a, an opportunity for a really in, amazing conversation to happen, I think. I'm really curious as well. So you're an actor and a performer and, you know, did you come first to that before you started um, kind of writing about theatre in a, in a critical way? Sort of. I I started theatre, like actory stuff back in high school. And then when I came to Drama Centre in Adelaide at Flinders University, we, um, because it's run through a university, we had to write um, about you know, it's quite a theoretical component of writing critically. We had to do reviews. We um, did essays looking at bits and pieces like comparative stuff with plays. So I was writing critically a little bit while I was doing acting training. So it kind of happened at the same time. Yeah, which I think was good because it, it kind of made me look at performance in a different way to sort of appreciate it on a dramaturgical level, like the machinations of what like is happening as opposed to just seeing how it affects me. I think um, that's something that kind of comes up is the idea that arts criticism and being an artist are two separate things. Yeah. And that they're not, they, one doesn't inform the other or one doesn't have as much value or that if someone isn't an artist, they can't be an arts critic mm. and things like that. Um, so I think it's really interesting that you're sort of talking about them as sort of maybe working in tandem rather than against one another. Yeah, I think... I think both can work. Like if you're, like for example, someone's a critic and they're not necessarily a performer or a writer or something, I think, you know, there are certainly limitations there, but they have the advantage of being separate and able to mm. look at something as a pure spectator and that's a really valuable thing to be able to do that. But at the same time, 
I think it's equally as important for critics to exist in the world who are also working in the industry and know how these things work. Like, as an actor, I, I can kind of empathise with the journey that some actors have to go on while they're performing and, and I sometimes find myself worrying about their emotional state while they're doing certain things and I take that into consideration when I write. And it's been kind of interesting juggling the two because – you know, you, you kind of have overlap because sometimes you have to write reviews for people that you've auditioned for or <laughs> something like that. And so sometimes at Witness, we're very explicit about if there's any conflict of interest or if there's any kind of previous relationships or whatever. But I personally just choose to not review those things or, or just to kind of stay separate and let someone else take it on yeah. who's not necessarily got that inside look. I love that you mentioned before that you really you think about the actor's welfare within what you're saying as well. And, you know, sometimes that can be detrimental. I remember having a big debate with myself when I sat in on a play that didn't have any trigger warnings and you mm. couldn't tell from the copy that it was going to be anything that was deeply about sexual violence. And yeah. it was. And I sat there and I didn't want to – I was changing the expression on my face. I was looking really like – didn't want to get up, didn't want to move because I didn't want to offend the people that were in the show. And then I was like, oh, hang on. Actually, no, I need to leave and yeah, that's okay. Totally, yeah. Um, so, you know, don't go that far on looking after people's welfare. Like I think they can handle that that wasn't something I wanted to sit through. Absolutely. But yeah. on the other hand, I think considering our place as a, a community and, and looking after the people, like your criticism, even if it is, I don't think you handled that very well, if it is critical, quote unquote, um, and kind of pulling out some things that could be done better. You're still doing that with the best of intentions and hoping that the artist will, you know, grow and take that on or it's a discourse, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, like there have been shows that I've seen where it was still quite early stages. Because it was such personal content, it was – I was very, you know, conscientious of that and I wasn't too critical. I kept that in mind while I was writing about it. So I, you know, I, I'm still able to – kind of have that separation but um yeah I think in a way yeah as an audience member as anyone like if you're not feeling comfortable in a performance you should definitely like leave uh, there was a review that we wrote a witness that um there was a conversation that was had about trigger warnings and that these things need to be explicitly put out there that like for example if there's going to be audience participation like maybe if someone's going to end up like I don't know, like a performer is going to come in and touch people or, you know, it gets a little bit funny for people who have anxiety or might be, you know, people who have survived some trauma. And, you know, a lot of people do in this world, I mean, especially for women, I don't know a woman who hasn't had to experience something traumatic, which is awful, but we need to have these trigger warnings and we need to have this kind of stuff explicitly put out there. Absolutely. I understand people's point about, you know, you need the element of surprise sometimes in a show or there's a narrative arc or there's something like that and, you know, you can't hold people's hands through every aspect mm. of it. But I also think you need to give people the tools absolutely to yeah. consent and that's totally. what it is. It's consenting to um, being part of something or engaging in a show in a particular way so you can then have those takeaways. Absolutely, yeah, because when – as an audience member, you think you're going to be just sort of sitting there watching, you know, a pros art show and it's that's kind of it. But if you aren't really given a heads up as to the nature of the show and that you're going to actually be expected to participate in some way, that's it's yeah, it's not consent at all. You just these performers are kind of assuming, which is really bad. Like, yeah, there's got to be the safety. And totally. I suppose that also can come back to 
we're talking about, yeah, you would like to have the element of surprise, but if your audience maybe does have that sort of response to it, does it ultimately serve your piece anyway? Surprise is good, but safety is better. Yeah. Um, I think if you can surprise like if you can get that kind of response in a safe way or perhaps you know if there's a way to give the audience the heads up so they know what the that there's going to be an element of something and you can still kind of deliver that surprise I mean I guess that's the best way to do it but yeah it's such a tricky thing to navigate because yeah how do you maintain that pure response if you're having to be so careful about getting it to happen I love thinking about criticism as a space for care as well because it's really counter to the narrative that we often have and thinking about that there's a Jen Clower line I think it's tongue-in-cheek but you know those who can do those who can't review Mm. and you know this is uh, there's absolute proof to to counter that in that it's a discourse it's a I think she's being cheeky yeah I don't think she actually thinks that but you know we're fighting back on that and also um yeah thinking about it as a yeah a care a mode of care or as well as discussion those who can't review, I think there are, well, there are some reviewers out there where that might actually apply. <laughs> um, I won't mention any names, but you can kind of tell that they are coming from a very separate place and it's, or even a bitter place. And, you know, it's, they're not that many of them. I think we're pretty good with reviewers, but yeah, I think it is a place of care. You need to start a conversation. You need to give people a sense of what they're walking into or a way for them to kind of decode what they've just seen because sometimes theatre's not that straightforward. Or contextualise it, put it in. Yeah, totally. That's something I really enjoy about reading your work is that there's generosity in it. And that is is part of – I will highly encourage our listeners to please do head to Witness Performance and read Carissa's work. It's fantastic. Um, we're going to have to leave it there, but before we do, I just wanted to ask if you have any advice for folks who are emerging critics that are, you know, hoping to get started or getting into that game, if yeah. you will. Um, watch lots of what you want to review, I guess. Be sure to read other reviews so you can see like what sort of formats there are. Like if you look at how you know, Alison does it, it's quite in depth, whereas you know, some other reviews are forced to be quite short and that's okay too. Sometimes you just want a little bit of info. But I think also learning what a bad review is, is very important. Making sure you're culturally sound with what you're seeing before you go see something like particularly Indigenous theatre, I think is a really good idea just so you know the context. Yeah, making sure you read up and you're educated a little bit on what you're seeing so as to not leave room for error, I guess, to sort of have a bit more of an understanding of what it is being seen, because I think that's the greatest tragedy of critique, particularly looking at Indigenous theatre, is people don't understand the structure and therefore assume it's wrong. And so I think, yeah, making sure you've got an open mind and you're able to sort of see things outside of the white Eurocentric construct, I think is very important. Criticism isn't something that is only external to us. Many of us can relate to the old adage, I'm my own worst critic and the feeling of being hamstrung by destructive thinking before we've even begun. Sometimes, though, this voice is a useful prompt to slow down and consider where it is your work is going and what consequences it may have and for whom. We spoke to writer, artist and poet Madison Griffiths about overcoming your inner critic, as well as the ways in which this inner naysayer can be useful and productive. Madison is a writer, artist and poet 
whose work revolves predominantly around issues concerning women, digital medias, and resistance. She's also an online editor at literary youth journal, VoiceWorks, and producer of The Tender Podcast, an audio documentary that explores what happens when women leave abusive relationships. You'll hear a snippet from Tender later in this episode. This episode is about the critic and how it goes into sort of, we can talk about it in a very literal sense, like arts criticism, but also the concept of the inner critic and how maybe sometimes that can prevent us from doing the things that we want to do or is a bit of a stumbling block sometimes. Do you ever find that that's something that you come across in your arts practice? Absolutely. I think with the making of um, the Tender podcast, I feel like the majority of the content revolved around um, what it meant to be critical of that experience and what it meant to be critical on a broader, more political level, um, as well as what it meant to literally doubt your own experiences with, with violence and with abuse. So there was a lot of handballing that broader criticism of the way women are treated with the inner critic, which was saying, oh, it wasn't really that bad though, was it? Or what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you turning something really, you know, awful into something quite nice? What's the point? So there was a, there, there were so many of those sort of um, critical questions that I was, I was grappling with for sure. And how do you go about dealing with it? <laughs> Not very well. No, um, I have a really good support network. I should disclose that it did take over three years to be able to comfortably decide to look inwards. If I had started Tender any earlier than that, I don't think I would have had the tools or the resilience to be able to sit with that discomfort of of not believing myself sometimes or, or, or feeling that. And maybe part of this relates back then to responsibility. And that's a question that I think is worth asking at the centre of this is your responsibility to yourself if you're going to be talking about your past trauma as one example, Mm -hmm. but also your responsibility to the communities that you're part of, Mm -hmm. to other folks in the broader community. And some of that that question of should I be telling this story is always a worthwhile one to ask, I would say. Yeah, it's not a negative question necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we've been talking about like the inner critic as like something that is detrimental or difficult to work with but it's also sometimes really necessary. I guess that's why I'm most excited to work with Broadway because there is this element of I've finished my my hurrah now and my voice doesn't really make much contextual sense in when we're working with say an older woman or a woman from another demographic um, or not a woman at all when we talk about violence. So um, I think it is really important to be aware the entire time you're working in this space of the parameters around you and who built them in the first place and why they're there. I think that's that's an incredibly important point to remember. So for listeners who don't know what Broadwave is or, or, or kind of what you're referring to there, can you just explain that a little? Yes. So Broadwave is, I'm sure you're familiar with Broadwave, Izzy. <laughs> um, Broadwave is an independent um, podcast network run by Izzy Roberts or Beth Atkinson-Quinton and Arige Nur. Broadwave and Tender are partnering up to create season two of the Tender podcast, which will actually focus around another woman's story. And it will follow that same chronological narrative um, structure of a, of a woman sort of making sense of herself in this new world, which is what I sort of refer to as the after and what the after looks like for her. But we are going to be focusing on a woman from an older generation, so a woman that's 40 plus, 
and we are opening expressions of interest very soon and trying to show listeners that there is no one experience of abuse but all of these experiences tie into the structural you know the structural abuse that that women and marginalized folk experience daily through like a political social financial lens so yeah it's very exciting so following on then thinking about that space of criticism uh, and how tender you know it's critical of certain power structures but there's criticism that you have to deal with in your own ways have you got any advice for folks who are you know dealing with that questioning of their own space to tell a story or imposter syndrome or other forms of criticism uh, for themselves the really not very useful ones which might be the I'm no good at this no one's going to listen to this no one cares those voices that are perhaps not as productive as am I the right person to tell this story which can Mm. be really useful. Yeah, I I think that's a really wonderful point and I think that's something all creatives have to sit with. Um, One thing that helps me, I find, is listening to to interviews like this with people I really admire and hearing what they say about those sort of, you know, the days that they aren't feeling particularly productive or the days where they're thinking, who the fuck is going to listen to this? One thing that I I really rely on is my network of, of young and wonderful writers as well. And we're all having the same questions. And there is a really wonderful way to work together in that space, which can be really, I think this is another thing that's quite complex, is for people that sort of fit in the in the margins, there is this sort of imbued sense of competition. There can only be one. There can only be one mixed race, you know, so-and-so that's, that's filling this space. But we're not playing by the rules. The, those rules haven't been written by us. So it's about all the seats at the table and working together. I think that's really powerful that that's the example that you use, like, you know, this idea that there can only be one and that that isn't actually something that we've decided for ourselves. That's something that's been placed in this sort of capitalistic like way that it works is that we need to compete with one another but actually the very sort of real example of tender and broadway and then you're also going to be like working with and telling someone else's story Mm. helping someone else to tell their story like that's a community there and that's very much more than one person who's had this experience and are using it to tell a story well yeah it's not just like there can only be one x y and z it's like there can only be one person who's experienced trauma in this way or there can only be one person who experiences body dysmorphia in this way or only be one person who's experienced all of these other facets of of personal trauma and recovery so there's sort of competition with the recovery narratives as well Mm -hmm. and you're like oh my goodness you're comparing your recovery narrative to to not just that of the people around you, but that of the people around you that are capitalising on this or succeeding based on this. And um, that is something that I really need to keep checking in with myself and saying, hang on a minute. There was a period when I was creating Tender where I did have quite a long break in the middle. And I think it was around a six-week break. I didn't feel like I was getting better in the way I felt the podcast wanted me to get better, which is a really strange thing to say because I wrote the podcast and I had an idea for how the podcast was going, but I didn't feel I was abiding by those rules or those standards and I didn't feel like I was going through through a breakup and I was feeling incredibly sort of disheveled and alone and I didn't feel like the people that were listening wanted to hear that side of me. And that was a really odd feeling because it was like, hang on a minute, now I'm trying to conform to the trauma narrative. And this is kind of exactly the point that I wanted to make, that there is no right way to recover. So it is really important to keep keep checking in with yourself and realise that there are no 
rules. How rude of life not right? to follow the story arc <laughs> that you planned out for yourself, right? <laughs> so we've talked a bit about uh, self-criticism and dealing with that, but how about other people's criticism? How do you find that? How do you how do you go about I guess dealing with the other people's responses to the work that you put out into the world, particularly because yours is so personal. There is that pu- there is a public feedback element to it, which I I think I just have a have a pretty standard relationship with that when it's reviewed, um, or when people sort of tweet about it. Great, I'll retweet, I'll thank them. That sort of you know back and forth, but because it is such personal work, it gets a lot of personal feedback. So then I get the emails and the personal messages and declarations a thousand word declarations from women who've never been given the opportunity to talk about their trauma. And you can sort of read in in these emails, they warm into it. And then suddenly they're telling you their, their whole story. And at first I found that really daunting because I don't know these people. I don't know where I fit in their lives. So it's about handling that delicately and knowing that that is sort of the price you pay when you do reveal yourself in this way. It's permission. It's permission for other people to reveal themselves. In saying that, so I always respond to every email and message I get and I really do appreciate them. Some bring me to tears. They're incredibly brave. But I do set set aside a time where I, I do that because if I... If I'll be getting along with my day and then suddenly I'll get a message, I I can't really stop and, and, and sit with that because it puts me into a place that I'm, I'm not always willing to go to straight away. <laughs> You're about to hear a snippet from Madison's podcast, Tender. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So Tender is an audio documentary that follows what happens after women leave abusive relationships. There are instances I remember with Theo that I wish I could change wish I could be larger, more tenacious, a huge and dangerous gust of feminine wind. But there are instances that I am proud of too, instances where I protested well and powerfully. I actually really wanted him to know how hurt I had been. That's Ginny. She started seeing her current boyfriend Noel within a year of leaving an abusive partner. Rather than walking on eggshells, she recited her experiences to Noel firsthand, something she refers to as a form of protection. She wanted to feel seen, and for love to grow between them, there needed to be transparency. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Writers Festival podcast. This year, the festival runs from the 19th to the 29th of June in Melbourne. You can catch Carissa at the National Writers' Conference on Saturday the 22nd of June, looking beyond stale traditional perspectives on a panel about cultural criticism across music, text, theatre and screen. See Madison performing in A Raven, A Writing Desk, a night of storytelling dedicated to defining our own experiences and recognising mental illness as both an obstacle and inspiration on Thursday the 20th of June at Brunswick Mechanics Institute. See the full Emerging Writers Festival program and book tickets online at emergingwritersfestival.org.au. Full artist bios for this episode are available on the website and in the show notes on SoundCloud. Our theme music for the podcast is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. You can check them out on Facebook at Huntley Music and listen to their recently released debut album Low Grade Buzz wherever you normally find your music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands that this podcast reaches.